It's uh, good to be here with you guys, some of you guys, and good to be here at a distance with other... Where's the camera at? Is it... I'm lost, so... It's, it's in front of me anyway, so... Jo- Josiah's got, like, a sneaky spy set up here or something, so cool. Um, all right, so uh, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ross. I get served here as one of the, the pastors, and a family pastor, and um, I'm excited about jumping into to Matthew, to con- continuing our series in Matthew, which Justin has led us uh, in uh, so uh, so well, and he's led us in a lot of things um, this morning and, and, uh, and throughout this, this past couple of months. Super thankful for that. But And I'm excited to, to continue that this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And I even have a clicker this, this service, so we'll see how this goes. But, but, but as, we, as we jump in uh, um, to Matthew chap, chapter 16, the first thing I want us to, to remember is to remind ourselves... Of, of Matthew's aim. What is his uh, intended meaning? And we'll see how this... Uh, turn it on. Yeah, what is his intended meaning? What is his purpose in writing the book of Matthew? And uh, Matthew has done a... He's been reorienting us as we go through at every stage around his purpose. And we see that his aim, his purpose is to write after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. He's looking back and he's telling his audience, this mostly Jewish audience, that they have missed their Messiah King. So he writes to convince them of Jesus' legitimacy as their king. He's trying to prove to them that he's the Christ, that he's the king that they've missed. And we've seen him do this in two particular ways, two primary ways. We've seen him do this first uh, uh, by showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, that Jesus is the king that the prophets uh, predicted. And so dozens of times, literally, we've seen Matthew say, this was to fulfill dot, 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 dot. But then secondly, so not only is he the fulfillment of prophecy, he also demonstrates his authority as king through his miracles and through his teaching. So he exercises Jesus' sovereign control over nature. He exercises sovereign control as king over demons and over human illnesses. And then he teaches, he speaks, commanding authority like a true king does. So... Jesus, uh, Matthew has confirmed Jesus' messiahship, his kingship, through his uh, fulfillment of prophecy and through his authority, the way he's demonstrated his authority as king. But here, in our passage for this morning that we're about to read, uh, we're going to see him confirm Jesus' kingship from a little different angle. And, uh, and it's important for us to remember, as we consider this third angle, that the Messiah these people were waiting on was not supposed to die. He was supposed to usher in a kingdom. And as he ushered in a kingdom, what's one thing that every kingdom has? People. People in the kingdom. Subjects in the kingdom. And so as he ushers in this kingdom, he creates a people for himself. A, a new covenant community. A new uh, and renewed Israel. Uh, um, and that, and the, this renewed kingdom would enjoy the benefits of the kingdom that he was building. The bottom line is this. If a Messiah, if a so-called Messiah, like Jesus was claiming to be, if he didn't have a victorious people following him, then he wasn't a real Messiah. 
And we see this principle at work today, right, uh, in our presidential primary candidates. In order to get on the stage, li like the one behind me, uh, a candidate, a primary candidate, has to have a certain number of people in the polls saying that they will vote, that are their supporter supporting him in the polls. Otherwise, they don't get invited to be on TV at the, at the debate, right? You're not a real presidential candidate unless you have people following you. And the same principle is true in the first century. In our passage today, we'll see that Jesus, as the true Messiah, he begins to lay the foundation for the community of people who would follow him after his resurrection. But this is important because even looking back on his resurrection, people would not, this, this community, this following of people, didn't look like a victorious kingdom. There wasn't a throne, there wasn't a castle, there wasn't an army. They were a church, not a nation. And Matthew's original audience would have seen this and wrestled with it. It wasn't what they were expecting. The people of God didn't look like the, what the people of God were supposed to look like. So uh, Jesus tells us here what his church, what his people are supposed to look like. They weren't going to be an empire with an army and a tax code and borders and a territory. Then what would this new, renewed Israel look like? And friends, this is not just a first century question. This is incredibly relevant to our time. There are a lot of ideas floating out there about what a church should look like, what Jesus' church is to be like. Some of these ideas are very popular and influential and publicly visible, like the ones on the screen behind me. Others' ideas about what the church is supposed to be like is more subtle, right? Each of us in, 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 each of us in this room, and myself is included, we have certain assumptions about the church, right? Some of these are good assumptions uh, handed down to us by uh, faithful believers who have gone before us. Some of these are bad assumptions uh, that, are, that have, are handed down more to us by our culture and, our, and, a, and a kind of a cultural understanding of what the church is to be. And some we're not even aware of how they filter and color our decision making. So the question that we have to continually be asking ourselves is, what did Jesus teach us about his church? And how, do, how does my assumptions about what the church is supposed to be like compare with what Jesus tells us his church is supposed to be like? So as to answer this question, what does Jesus teach us about the church? Uh, we're going to tackle it in two parts. There's going to be two points. Uh, we're going to look at two different uh, divided the, the section from 13 to 28 into two sections. So let's read this first half, verses 13 through 20, if you have your Bibles in front of me. Let me pray, and then we'll read it, okay? Father, we, uh, we ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, through the ministry of your Word, do your work deeply in us. Uh, we ask now that as we uh, come, and we know there's... Uh, a lot of things going on, whether we're sitting in our living rooms uh, watching this or we're, whether we're, we're here and there's, there's kids in the room. We know that there's, there's many things. We've got plans for this afternoon, a great sunny day. There's many things that we could, our minds could drift to. Uh, but we ask, Lord, that you would, by the power of your word, uh, 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 still our, our hearts and teach us, Lord, what, uh, what your church is to look like. So we commit this time to you and in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, let's read beginning in verse 13. Uh, it's on the screen behind me. All right. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth earth shall be released in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, so this is a pretty striking conversation, very unusual conversation to us. And and so we we need to um, dig in a little bit to figure out what's going on. And and first we see that that he begins by asking a very odd question to us. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? We may say, okay, that is a weird question. Why does Jesus care about what other people thought about him? Why does he want his disciples to think about this? But I think what we see here is that Jesus, even with a question, he is seeking to, to teach and to form his disciples, like good teachers do. They ask a lot of questions. And, but we see the main point of, of this by, by, in his follow-up question. He asks them another question. He wants his disciples to wrestle with his true identity. So he asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter, good old Peter, he's the first to pipe up, but he's probably kind of speaking as a representative of the disciples, uh, like uh, he's speaking on behalf of the other apostles. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now this is a climactic point in Jesus's ministry and in Peter's life. For the first time, one of his disciples has openly and plainly acknowledged him to be not just a unique teacher or a prophet or a miracle worker, but the one man in whom all Israel had been hoping for millennia. He was the son of God and Christ, just as David, just as the Old Testament calls David God's son and anointed king. But then Jesus turns to Peter and says, you're right, Simon, Uh, But now that you've correctly identified me, I am going to correctly reveal your true identity. And beginning in verse 18, he unpacks kind of the first of our two points. And that, that is, Jesus tells us that his church is to confidently carry out the mission of her Messiah. That's what we see in verses 18 through 20. So he says, you are Peter, which means rock, it's the same Greek word, and on this rock I will build my church. Okay, so you may have heard that verse quoted before grown adults. But then we come to verse 19. It's another controversial verse, very confusing to us. It uh, took me a while even just to, to wrestle with what's going on here. Um, and Jesus promises to Peter that he will give him the keys of the kingdom, and whatever Peter Binds on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. Now, in order to understand that weird language um, and what exactly is going on, we need to ask two quick questions that we're going to answer. First, we have to ask, is Jesus saying that Peter, or, or the church, gets to choose who gets into heaven and who is kept out of heaven? 
right? It kind of sounds like if Peter were a bouncer, or if, if heaven were a club, then Peter would be the bouncer, right? Deciding who gets in and who, who gets kicked out. Or maybe Peter would be more like the kid in Sandlot who's, who's picking teams in the backyard, right? Um, but when we take a close look at this, that's not what's actually going on here. Those aren't actually the, the words or the, the image that Jesus has in mind. A, a lot of our, our translators, uh, when they translate this verse, they'll say something like, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So that's, like a, that's a future tense verb. They're saying uh, what you do will determine what happens in heaven. Right? Like Peter's on the sideline saying, okay, you get in, you get out. You, you're in, you're, you don't make the cut. But, uh, but really, I think what, it's better to translate that ver- verb not as a uh, plain future, but it's, it's more nuanced than that. It's, it should be translated, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, or whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound or released in heaven. Okay, do you see the difference there? Uh, the, the apostles' actions, they don't determine what goes on in heaven, who gets in and who stays out. Their actions reflect what is already the case in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's the first question. Is Peter heaven's bouncer? And the answer is no. But then secondly, what does it mean to hold the king keys of the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean to bind and loose? What is that language supposed to tell us? Well, I think we get help by uh, answering this question by flipping our Bibles uh, a couple pages over to Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. And, and here, Jesus uses similar language with the Pharisees. He's addressing the Pharisees, not Peter. But he uses negative language. This is a con- negative, uh, negative uh, meaning. And he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who, who would enter go in. So he received that the Pharisees were preventing people from entering the the kingdom. They were shutting the doors, locking them out. And they were doing this through their legalistic, burdensome, false teaching that rejected Christ as the Messiah. That's how they were locking the doors of the kingdom of, of heaven. And, but in Matthew chapter 16, we, the, the keys of the kingdom refer to the same kind of thing. They refer to the apostles, to Peter's teaching. Uh, but Peter is, is wielding the keys of the kingdom by preaching, by proclaiming the true gospel that Jesus is the true Messiah. So, uh, so the church, which is built on uh, the foundation of Peter, it binds and releases people. It unlocks and locks the door to heaven as it proclaims the gospel, the gospel that Peter's just proclaimed in verse 18. So, okay, how does that work? What, what, is, what do we mean by this? Well, Jesus has promised to build his church upon the foundation of men and women who proclaim him as king. And as this gospel is preached, the doors of the kingdom are either opened to those who, whose soft hearts believe and repent and come in, or simultaneously it is closed, it is locked to those who, uh, whose hearts are hardened and, and disbelieve. Right? This is how Jesus is building his kingdom. It's through the pro- proclaiming of the word. And every time the gospel is preached, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, whether it's uh, as you share the gospel uh, in, in your workplace or with a, a family member or as we have family devotions around the table or uh, meet in our community groups and, and discuss the word, anytime the gospel is expounded and, and, and taught, Two things are going on simultaneously. Either 
hearts are being opened and the, and the gates of heaven are being swung wide or hearts are being hardened and the gates of heaven are being closed off. Jesus is not trying to build great programs, right? He's not trying to build a great show on Sunday or a political agenda. He is building a church. And as we speak the gospel to each other and to our world, we swing wide the doors into the life-giving reign of Christ. Now, can you imagine what our church would look like if we each took this more to heart? If we, in our marriages, around the dinner table, in our community groups, in our discipling relationships, if we were constantly laying the foundation of the word into each other's lives. And we can run at this task confidently because he promises victory. He, will, he tells us he will build this church and that death will not overcome it. It will never die or never fade. That He is building the church victorious. What else could you possibly devote your life to? So let's carry out the mission of our Messiah. That's the first point uh, of two. So, let's, uh, so that's what the church is to do. Now let's uh, look at how we are to do this, how we are to carry this out. And as we do that, we're going to shift into verses 21 through 28. And, and we will see that the church is to confidently carry out her, the mission of her Messiah in the manner of her Messiah. So let's read 21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me or a a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. All right, did you notice here uh, how the mood changes quite a bit from uh, from this first paragraph? Uh, Jesus really shifts quite sharply. No longer is he talking about the church victorious. What he describes here is really unvictorious and unglorious and unattractive. But we begin this paragraph in the same way uh, that we began the last paragraph. Jesus has a one-on-one dialogue with Peter. And he says, the time is coming uh, when, I, uh, when uh, we're going to stop hanging around in Caesarea Philippi and in, in Galilee up north. We're going to head south into uh, Jerusalem which is basically a hive of killer bees. And that's where my life will end, and it must happen like this. And then, Jesus, and then Peter rebukes him for his short-sightedness. All right? uh, but P- Jesus turns to Peter. He, he squares up with him, and he says, You are the rock on which I'm building my church, but now you have become 
the stumbling block. Get behind me, Satan. And, I, and, I, and we read that and we're like, whoa, Jesus, that really escalated quite quickly, right? You, you need to work on your negotiating skills or something, right? D- don't you think calling someone Satan is a little bit extreme? Uh, but, but if you think about it, Jesus is totally right. Uh, Peter is doing exactly what we saw Satan himself do in Matthew chapter 4, uh, all the way back there where Jesus is, is alone in the wilderness and Satan comes to him and tempts him. And, and he tempts him by taking him to a very high mountain and say to, say to Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. All right, what, what is the essence of what Satan is saying? You can have your glorious, victorious kingdom and you don't even have to suffer for it. Just worship me. And this is, in essence, exactly what Peter wants for his Messiah. He wants the blessings of the kingdom, the victory, the glory of the kingdom, but he just thinks there's a better way of going about getting it. But Jesus says that the manner in which he carries out his mission, the manner in which he's building his church is of utmost importance. And he takes this one step further, beginning in verse 24. And he says, not only does he, is he going to go down to Jerusalem and suffer and die, he then turns to all his disciples and tells them if that, they're going to stick with him, then the same thing is going to happen to them. So here's the point. Jesus is building a victorious, death-defying, hell-defeating church But victory comes through destruction. Glory comes through shame. Our glory comes through your shame. In order to live, you must die. This is the inglorious, unattractive manner in which Jesus is building his church. Now notice, Jesus is addressing his disciples here. It's his followers. It's church people like us. These are the people that that need this message most. We are. But unfortunately, there's a couple of ways in which you and I, we can respond to this command poorly. Firstly, it's, it's very easy for us to read this passage and, and hear it taught and think, well, that's a very nice sentiment. Like, that's a good thing to live up for, you know, denying yourself and, 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 and dying to yourself each day. But really, like, I'm a normal Christian. That's a little serious. That's a little extreme for me. Right? I'm just trying to live a normal life uh, make a living, support my family, show up to church, watch the live stream, whatever, make it through another week with as little inconvenience as possible. And so we sidestep Jesus' command by justifying ourselves, by saying that, we, that this simply shouldn't or can't apply to me. I'm not that kind of Christian, right? But, but notice, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, And whoever would seek his life must lose it. This is universally true and applicable. Uh, And what he is saying here is that there is a way to exist without ever really living. Are, Are we, are you and I, are we content to exist? Or do you want to live? But then secondly, we respond to this commandly command poorly when we say things like, well, okay, I'm willing to suffer theoretically, you know, for Christ, you know, but it's not like we see persecution going on in the Kenai Peninsula, right? I mean, nobody's trying to hang me on a Roman cross. So I guess I don't really have to worry about that right now, right? But, but losing one's life 
Denying one's self and taking up one's cross, which means walking the road to death, is not just something Christians do during some heroic defining moment in Christian history when the church is being persecuted. Jesus is telling us that following him down into death is something we do daily. Conforming to the manner of our king is to be the most pervasive habit of our lives. It's to color every hour of our existence. When I, when I drive to the church each day throughout the week, um, I'm coming from the Kisilov area, so I have two options of how to get to church. I could either take the straight main road from up to Sterling Highway, then turn left for four minutes down K Beach and get to 44175 K Beach Road. Or I could turn left a little early onto Echo Lake Road, take the windy turns of Echo Lake, turn, turn right onto Gasville, then turn left onto K Beach Road. All right, two options. Main road, back road, they, or, yeah, main road or the side road, they, they both take about the same amount of time, so, uh, um, except for in the wintertime, but they take about the same amount of time, so sometimes I'll you know, switch it up, add a little spice to my life. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I, I have two options, two routes to get to work. Following Jesus is not like that. There is one route. And it's down, down, down into death. And only through destruction do we find victory. Only through death do we find life. All right, the, the, the Christian life isn't about finding life now. It's experiencing death through, uh, life through death. Only by giving up our, our, our passion to accumulate the world, which we all do, it's not just the millionaires, right? Uh, we all want to gain the whole world. We all want to accumulate the toys or the, the security, the financial freedom and, and, and security. We all want the, the free time to be able to spend our weekends or our vacation time however we want. We all want that. It's only by giving that up do we, do we stop merely existing and start to live. And you can understand why Peter reacts the way he does. He, he understands the weight of Jesus' words and what this will mean for his followers. But aren't we all like Peter? Right? We all want the comforts of the kingdom without conformity to the king. But it doesn't work like that. We want him to build his church uh, that defeats the power of death, but we don't want it to cost us too much. Right? We can do this in our personal lives, but we also approach the church this way. Right? Many of us want the church to be great, we want it, and we want to be part of a great and healthy church. We want it to be a beacon of light and a, and a, and a, a well-respected institution in our community. We want our local government and our community to regard us as a good and positive influence on society. We want engaging programs that meet all our needs and an effective evangelism strategy that wins people for Christ. We want, we want a, a missions department that sends gobs of money to Africa. We want, we want our, our state and our local and our national politicians and legislators to enact policies that, that line up with our values, that defend our values. And we want Jesus to build his church in all the glory and the splendor and the comfort that he promised us to. Right? This is my idea of a victorious, glorious church. But Jesus says, I'm not building my church in the manner you think I should. 
I'm not building my church through great, successful programs. I'm not building my church through a half million or million dollar budget. That's meaningless to me. I'm not building my church through a great, uplifting, encouraging hour of worship and teaching. I'm building my church through men and women who in tiny, unseen, mundane ways join me in trying to say no to their own comforts and their own conveniences. And my friends, this begins uh, in the privateness of our own uh, personal lives and in the privacy of our own homes. Uh, Paul Miller, who's an he's a author and a, a podcaster who I'd really recommend, he, he, says it, he says it this way. He says, the normal Christian life, the average everyday Christian life, is one that repeatedly reenacts the dying and rising of Jesus. This is exactly what we see in Matthew chapter 16. So what, is, what does that mean for us practically? Uh, well, one of the ways I'm learning to apply this in my own life is um, wh- when I get home from work, when I pull in the driveway, open the door, come say hi to Monica and Micah, uh, m- my tendency is to think uh, my day is finally over now. Like, right, I get to, I get to just relax or whatever, veg out. It's me, it's me time to focus on, on but, but when I come home, what I've been learning is that my day is not ending, it is just beginning. My role is to not now carve out me time, but die to myself daily, moment by moment, hour by hour, dying to myself for the service of my family. And uh, I have got a lot of room to grow in this, for sure. Uh, but what I've found is that as I die to myself, in serving my family, uh, it brings much greater and newer life than just scrolling on my phone or, you know, working on some hobby that I want to work on, right? Uh, And I'm learning that men, when we come home from work, it's only at that point that our true work is just beginning. No matter how mentally stressed or physically tired we are, For it's when we're with our families that we're able to devote ourselves to our primary calling. We kick it into second gear and we die to ourselves. But this is not just true for husbands and fathers. This is true for the whole church, right? Uh, Over the next several weeks, as we begin to kind of, Lord willing, rephase back into normal life, we'll see how long that takes and what... What, uh, what that process looks like, but I can guarantee you, I can't, we can't really guarantee much, but I can guarantee you that if you want to follow Jesus faithfully in this season, you are going to have to die to yourself in ways that you haven't yet died to yourself. And that's because online church, from the comfort and convenience of your own living room, that's kind of an appealing thing, Right? I mean, I, I felt it. I, I, I work here, and, and I felt it, right? And I think a lot of us have felt it. As much as we've missed seeing people, you extroverts, uh, it, it's very convenient. So as we reshift into our public gatherings, we need to reshift our thinking. We need to be looking for new ways to serve, new ways to help set up, or, or all, all the extra legwork that goes into serving our people. We need to, new ways to lose our life, new ways to die to ourselves, and new ways to bear one another's burdens in person. Right? The, the church is to carry out the mission of her Messiah in the manner of her Messiah. This begins, kids, at a very young age. And parents, as we cast a vision for what, our, what we want our kids uh, to look like as full-grown adults, 
Uh, how does your vision compare to Jesus's? Are you casting a vision of, of, of success and a great education and, 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 and great meaning and fulfillment in this life? Or are you casting a vision uh, in which your kids will grow to daily die to themselves and conform to the pattern of their king who was nailed on the cross? So, if you're listening to this and you're like, you're just like me, and you, you think, man, I could really uh, be more wholeheartedly following Jesus right now. I've been, I, I, there are so many ways in which I am chasing after the, the comforts of the kingdom without conformity to the king. Know that Jesus is not browbeating us here. He's not shaming us into submission or obedience. Jesus is inviting us into greater intimacy, greater participation with greater fellowship with himself. That's how we get closer to Jesus, is by saying no to our convenience, no to taking the easy way out in the face of temptation, no to taking the easy way out when we're, when we're faced with an opportunity to serve. We say yes to taking a death, step down into suffering and death, reacting Jesus' death and resurrection each day. And this is what Jesus has done for us. This is the only thing that could have saved us. This is what we're told Jesus must do. And we must do it as well if we were to follow him. And he has secured for us the victory, uh, the, the victory of his church that will not be overcome by death. And this means that we can cry out to him. We can confess our pride. We can confess our sin honestly and say, Jesus, Jesus more often than not, I'm like Peter the stumbling block. Uh, than, than Peter the Rock. More often than not, I'm a slave, not to you, but to my own comfort and my own convenience. And we can ask him to change us by the power that brings dead men and women to life. We can ask him to lead us to victory through destruction, to, to, to use me to build your victorious church in an inglorious manner. So would you pray with me as we close? God, in Christ, our Messiah, you have defeated death for us in our place and on our behalf. So would you conform us to that pattern as we await the coming of the Son of Man, uh, this coming of the the kingdom in in fullness. We we look back and see how you have come in power uh, through the proclamation of your gospel and the building of your church. Lord, teach us to join in that mission in the manner that you have called us to. And we we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.